Turn with me, please, to the fifth chapter of Romans. For the last couple of Sunday school lessons that John has brought, he has looked at that reality of our participation in the transgression of Adam. And I'm not going to be dealing with that today, but it is, of course, in this chapter where in verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. When it says here, all have sinned, this is speaking of personal transgressions. It means we sinned in Adam. It means we participated in his transgression. Uh, it's not easy sometimes for people to understand. Of course, Adam was created as we would term the federal head of the human race. So that whatever he did had effect upon all of his posterity, all the human race. And when he sinned, that sin became ours as well. So, and not only as he is representing us, but he is also the seminal head of the creation. And what we mean by seminal head is that we are brought forth through him. We were there in Adam. I know that's difficult to understand. It, just like when you read in scripture, speaking of Levi and uh, the, the loins of his father. <laughs> but we were created in Adam. When we come into this world, it's not a special creation. It's a procreation. All of us were created in Adam. So that not only do we have his sin imputed to us, because we sinned in him. I mean, the scripture teaches this. We also sinned in him because of this federal headship of Adam. And then similarly, we inherit his nature. We come into this world with the fallen nature of Adam. And so we are born sinners. I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me, as could write David in Psalm 51. We come forth sinners. Uh, just as was made reference this morning in Psalm, what is it, 58, speaking lies. <laughs> Little babies come into this world liars. And we learn as small children, we'll lie to get our way or to keep ourselves out of some particular trouble so that we learn we're sinners. And that's a big part of it. And uh, we begin thinking unclean thoughts. We become rebels against authority. We're born sinners. If we perish sinners, we perish forever. If we perish sinners, we come under the perfect justice of God that will condemn us to being separated from Him in hell forever. Shut up unto ourselves. And uh, when a young preacher and studying theology, one of the things that was horrific to me was considering when studying sin that sin is self-isolating. Now, you have to think about that. Sin is self-isolating. Of course, sin means we're taken up with ourselves. 
Our concern is for ourselves and for what we desire. And what we desire, of course, is in a fallen sense. So that we learn that divisions come because of sin. Uh, it still takes place, of course, in the human race because uh, of this horrendous thing of sin. We're taken up with ourselves and we become self-centered. And uh, we, in creation, Adam was created God-centered. When he fell, he became self-centered. All of this we inherit from him as well. And so all the multitudinous sins in the human race are considered in this Romans chapter 5 as but like the branches of a tree coming forth from Adam. So we have as in verse 20 here, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Now, John did an effective work and teaching was very instructive in Sunday school. But I'm going to look back to this abounding grace, if you please, in this message and consider verses 6 through 8. I suspect, like me, maybe this is one of the favorite passages that you have who are in Christ. It is blessed to consider the wondrousness of divine grace the abounding grace of God over against the horrendousness of sin and that which we came into this world with, guilty with already, manifesting it in our lives. So we have these blessed words in Romans 5 verses 6 through 8. For when we were yet without strength, In due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, yet ungodly, yet defying him, yet walking in our own ways, Christ died for us. What a blessed gospel God has given us. We don't have to be shut up unto ourselves for eternity. We mentioned this matter of sin as being self-isolating. It's horrendous. Isolates us from God. Those who are in hell, they're not going to be friends in hell. They're not going to be friends there. They might have been some kind of friend in this world, but they won't be friends there because hate will separate the souls in hell. And sin will self-isolate. Shut up to self forever. That's a horrendous thing to think about. But here we learn of the wondrousness of divine grace over against what we deserve, over against the horrendous nature of sin. And my, when God begins to open a heart to show something about what sin is, it is an awakening. One does become awakened. And it's a horrific thing. Conscious of guilt. Conscious of being a sinner. God, in this manifesting that He is just, 
and the just judge. And that, my, that terrified me as a boy, thinking of standing before God, knowing even as a young boy that I was a sinner. And that has happened to all that God calls, they come to recognize the horrendousness or something of the horrendousness of sin. Not the full depth of it. We couldn't take it. I don't think we could take it. To comprehend the full nature of sin and ourselves as sinners. And so, to be saved from sin, to be brought into reconciliation with God, to come to know Him in truth, and to come to embrace a love that we come to realize spans eternity. How blessed. How glorious. How that moves us to want to honor and magnify Him. So these words in Romans 5 verses 6 through 8, they're stated simply. But the meaning of them cannot be fully fathomed. I am believing that yes, in eternity we who are saved by God's grace will sing as in Romans 5, Thou hast redeemed us by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Hast made us unto our God, kings and priests, brought from the lowest depth to a place of royalty and all by the wondrousness of divine love. And I believe we'll be looking at this forever and the glories of redemption in the presence of our Lord. But the deeper you go into this wondrous gospel and this truth, the deeper it becomes. In one single argument we have before us this superabounding nature of God's redeeming love and His wondrous grace. The sovereignty of it, the oneness of the Father and of the Son in it, and the absolute nature of it. Yet it's depths in the heart of God, not bypassing or ignoring or overruling or annulling His holiness and justice. God remains just. He doesn't save us. He doesn't show us His mercy by nullifying His justice. He remains holy. He remains absolutely just. But it's rather on the background of the darkness of sin that we have shining for us the glory of a love so great that in the perfection of the divine righteousness as well as perfect love it does away with the barrier between God and us. Isaiah declares your sins have separated you from your God. God, in the wondrousness of His love and grace and mercy, while upholding His absolute holiness and justice, all at the same time, 
shows us great mercy, saves us by his grace, makes us his own, puts away our sins as far as the east is from the west. That our apostle never thinks of the glorious love of God without the cross. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Never apart from the Father's glorious gift of His Son. In the third chapter of Romans, in verses 25 and 26, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. Propitiation is a big word. It signifies the sacrifice that is made that averts the wrath of God. To declare His, God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness, for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just, always remains just, righteous, holy, and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus, upholding His holiness, the cross does this. It's by the cross that God upholds His infinite holiness all at the same time is able to save us by grace. So, preliminarily when we look into these verses, we consider that verses 5 and 8, of course, have their vital connection. In verse 5, the apostle has been speaking about the hope that is born in the bosoms of God's people. And I would remind you that hope in the biblical sense is not a wish. It is that which is founded upon what God has promised and is certain. So that the apostle writes, Hope maketh not ashamed, because... The love of God, and we'll consider something about that wondrous love. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. And how does He flood us with the knowledge of that love? How does God the Holy Spirit make that love known to us? And how are we drawn to Him by that love? Verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gloriousness of redeeming love that so fills our hearts must have a firm basis, a firm ground. It is both to be understood as to what we would term its doctrinal meaning, And as it were, further than that, felt in us, experientially in us. An old expositor put this way, It is a poor thing to prove the love of God, and we need that not only shall we be sure of it, but that we shall be softened by it. It has a work in us when it's comprehended, when it's realized. 
We have in the gospel objective truth. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Was buried, rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He did apart from us what we could never do. He died for our sins. We're brought to look only to him. We have an objective truth there. And yet there's also that which is internal. Saving faith, of course, is faith in Christ. It's trust in Him completely. Reliance upon His finished redemption. Just as Paul could say in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed unto Him against that day. That's a self-abandoned trust of ourselves. Trusting Him only. But simply to believe in a cold doctrinal manner, laying hold only upon the historical fact or doctrinal logic, as we would call it, that can leave one as hard as ever and as callous as ever. But when the glorious truth revealed in the gospel is revealed in a heart into which God has poured His love by His Spirit, shed abroad, as we read here, by the Holy Ghost, transforms that soul. That soul can never be the same. It transforms that sinner into a saint. It dispels the darkness that hid the glory of God in Christ. And it moves you to give up your very self to the Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. And so when we consider these wonderful verses. We consider that it's on the background of the awful darkness of sin. And on that dark background that the light of God's love shines its life-giving beams into the heart. So we read in verses 6 and 7, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. You see what the apostle is doing here is setting forth a contrast. And what a contrast between the highest of human love and the depth of God's love. He's contrasting this. Human love over against God's love. On a human scale, due to self-love, due to the driving instinct of self-preservation, it's very unusual for one to deliberately die in order for another to live. That's not a usual thing. We see it sometimes on a human scale. And uh, that good, you remember uh, the fall of the towers, 9-11, 2001, right? Yes, there were those firefighters and those policemen who entered into those buildings 
knowing that those buildings could collapse in order to save others, and many of them died. Of course, that's heroic, a wondrous thing. We rightly honor those workers, those emergency workers or the police or those who fight to preserve our freedom, our freedoms on foreign fields, in battles, who put themselves in harm's way for others. But even on a battlefield, it's a thing more rare for a soldier to put himself into a position where he knows he shall die in order to save his fellow soldiers. There are some who have, but that's a very rare thing. Those we want to give the Congressional Medal of Honor, correct? Posthumously. And surely, for those we called or call commonly loved ones, father, mother, wife, son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, there's often such a love attachment on a human scale that one would be willing to die in order for the other to live. But now, consider this contrast. Paul's emphasis is to show this great contrast. The rarity of one dying for another, they consider worthy, we can understand it. Or congenial or loved, we, we can understand that. But Paul is speaking of the death of the Lord for those who are completely unworthy. Those who deserve nothing good from the hand of God. When he writes in verses 7 and 8, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God, oh what a contrast, but God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Might be the best understanding of the difference between the righteous person and the good person of verse 7. It's not speaking in the absolute sense. But considering it then on a human scale, probably explained best by Robert Haldane, a just man is distinguished here from a good or benevolent man. They are quite distinct characters among men. A just man is approved. A benevolent man is loved. Scarcely, however, would anyone give his life for the former, yet perhaps some might do so for the latter. You see what we understand is that human love finds its reason for loving in its object. It finds its reason for loving in the other. It finds something it desires about them or, or you know, thinking about a young man or a young woman, we use the word infatuation. Well, that's a good word. There's something that attracts from the other. There's something that attracts by them. 
I don't know how I ever got married to this blessed woman because of that. But anyway, <laughs> when I, she told me that when she first met me, and, and it was through my cousin that we were would become introduced, she asked her mother, she said, go and see if he looks all right or I'm not going to the door. So anyway, <laughs> and blessed for me, she came to the door. <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> So, but, but there's generally something that attracts in another. There's something there that attracts one in them. That's the way of human love. And, and it's, it's legitimate in many cases, in many senses, like that sense. Something in another attracts. And so one becomes responsive to that attraction. But God's love is not like that. Here's the wondrous thing. God's love is completely different from that. For God doesn't love us because He finds something attractive in us. He doesn't love us because He finds something in us that meets His desire and His approbation. Nothing like that. If it were so, there would be no salvation. If it were so, there would be no attraction from us to Him. Everything in us, without exception, is repulsive to Him. Thus, it would seem to us with all reason and logic that He would hate us, not love us. Because God hates sin. And oh yeah, I know the religious world and its terminology, but the scripture says God hates sinners. Psalm 5, 5, Psalm 11, 5, Romans chapter 9. And so, when God sovereignly loves, that is wondrous. That is something. God's love, by His own choice, by a divine, sovereign choice that had nothing to do with what he found attractive to him because there was nothing attractive to him. It was set on us in Christ. Well, that's what this passage is about. Not only set on us in Christ, but as the Lord prayed in the great high priestly prayer, God the Father loves us with the same love with which he loves Christ. That is amazing. Absolutely amazing. He didn't find us when we were righteous, when we wanted to do His will, when we wanted to walk in His holy ways. He found us when we were sinners. Not when we were godly, when we were ungodly. Not when we were clean, but we were defiled. Not when we had anything in us to commend us to God, for we were sinful in every part of our being. We were haters of God. We wanted our will, not His will. We despised those who claimed His name. We opposed Him and rejected His rule over us. We were absolutely ungodly. 
And yet God set his love on us. Sovereign love. Because he chose to do so. Oh, the Lord Jesus would make us his friends. And what a wondrous thing when we could ever be denominated like Abraham, the friend of God, right? God would make us his friends who were his enemies through the cross. Through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For Christ died in our place. He removed all the sinfulness or, or, or all the sins. Removed the barrier between God and us. And no other way. It wasn't because of something we could do, not something we could produce, not because we had the ability to rightly believe. For in the 10th verse of this chapter. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How? By the death of His Son. You see, God's great and glorious love is a peculiar love. It's a higher love than anything that could ever be comprehended and known in human nature. He loves in a unique way. It's His own love. God commendeth His love. It's His own love. It's a possessive there that belongs only to Him. God commendeth His love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a love that only proceeds from Himself. Found no attraction in us. It comes from Him only. And He only responds to His own sovereign will, not to something in us. Nothing at all in us. And yet displaying itself to us and drawing us in the highest possible way. God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it's because of this great love that we who were spiritually dead toward God were given life in Christ. John made reference to Ephesians 2 this morning. You have he quickened means to make alive, who are dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. We had no ability to do anything. We had no strength, as we read here, to do a thing to bring ourselves to God. Dead, spiritually. Oh, we became religious. Man is incurably religious. He'll make all kinds of professions if he thinks it's going to be for his good and maybe escape hell and go to heaven. And yet, dead spiritually, making no move truly toward the living God, not knowing Him in truth. And even those whom God by His wondrous sovereign grace chooses and brings to Christ. By nature, 
no different than anyone else. When in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, the way we live in time past. And the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Oh, those next two words of great contrast. But God. It's the only difference. Who maketh thee to differ? But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love, for without us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. By grace ye are saved. Not by your efforts, not by your will, not by your works, by grace ye are saved. Through faith. That not of yourselves. God, not of works. Lest any man should boast. It was by the bands of this love poured out into our renewed hearts that God drew us to Christ. The sinner God saves is brought to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and to the Christ of the cross and beholds his or her sins laid on him. Redeeming. Taking the place of Bearing all the penalty for sin. Trusting Him only. Believing Him. By that cross, through the work of God's Holy Spirit, God draws us to Christ. Every sinner that's saved comes by Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Through the cross. By the bands of love, God draws us to himself and becomes perfectly reconciled to us as if we had never sinned. It is an amazing, wondrous gospel. All behind it, a love that is so incredible that it loved us not when we were worthy of it, not when we were righteous, not when we were good, but when we were sinners. Ungodly. And upon what background then does the love of God find its objects? It was upon the background of sin against God. If ever there comes what we call an awakening or some term a revival in this nation, the first thing that will happen will men to come to be awakened to what they are. That they have sinned against the living God. And the horrendousness of that that brought spiritual death and separation from Him. And the realization that God is absolutely just, holy, and that the sinner must stand before Him. In judgment. We pray for that to take place. It was upon the background of sin against God. So strong that it robbed us of all strength to do anything about it. As in verse 6. When we were yet without strength. 
in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, not for the godly, for the ungodly. God's love, that wondrous love, that love loving us, loved us when he saw nothing at all good in us. Nothing. Oh, that false gospel that says, well, God looked down the channels of time. He saw that one by his free will would choose and another wouldn't. Well, somebody failed to read the scriptures. If they want to see what God saw when he looked down, read Psalm 14. You can see that some had something in them that would move them to come while others wouldn't. They had something better that would move their will that somebody else didn't know. There was no difference. No difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. That's Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. God loved us not only when we were thoroughly defiled and proven enemies by positive defiance of Him, but when we were completely unable to make a single true move toward Him. We were not able to move in truth toward God. Then if we were to be saved, it would be God who would have to take the initiative and do all the saving. We didn't have any strength to do anything. That's why the Lord Jesus says in John 6, verses 45 and 46, No man can come to me. That word can means has no ability to do so. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will raise him up again at the last day. It is written in the prophets. And they shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard. And those who have received this from the Father. The Lord Jesus says. Comes to me. Comes to me. The Son of God. It would have to be all of grace. All of grace. Salvation, all of grace, not of man, not of human will, not of human works, all of grace and nothing of our works. Considering our total inability, a total depravity affects every part of our being, just like John taught this morning. Doesn't mean we do as bad as we could. Why, if we didn't have restraints, it'd be horrendous, wouldn't it, John, what we would do? Horrendous. But there's also total inability without strength. Total inability. He would even have to give us the faith to believe. Where does faith come from? We can't produce it in ourselves. It is worked by God's grace. It's given to us in newness of life, what's called the new birth. It comes with that. And it comes because of God's sovereign will. Not because of our independent will. But His sovereign will. 
That's why I read in Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10, By grace are you saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves, that faith not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We who are saved, we don't have any place in ourselves to boast. We don't have anything in ourselves to glory of whatsoever. Our total inability by nature is vividly described in Scripture. Showing that if ever we come to Christ in repentance from sin and genuine self-abandoned trust in Him alone, then we have to attribute all of it to God, not to ourselves. To His grace, not to our works or will. To His grace alone. Nothing in us. We take no credit. Paul could write in 1 Corinthians 1.30 and following, Of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. We were spiritually unable to see. We had no spiritual sight. We could not comprehend the things of God. We could not perceive rightly this kingdom of God who rules over all things. We could not see it. The Lord Jesus said to Nicodemus, a ruler, a member of the ruling Sanhedrin in the nation of Israel. One who was supposed to be a teacher in Israel. but didn't read or hear those things about faith. And the Lord Jesus says, except a man be born again. That means have a new life, a spiritual birth. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He doesn't have the ability to do so. He is blind spiritually. A man is blind spiritually until God opens his eyes. And unable, unable to hear to the most religious people on the face of the earth, scribes and Pharisees, those who had their forms and their ceremonies and their ceremonial cleansings and went through all of these things, the Lord Jesus says to them, Why do you not understand my word? It's because you cannot hear it. Didn't mean they couldn't hear audibly. They couldn't hear it in their soul. Cannot hear it. Total inability. Unable to seek God in truth. Paul had already proved that in the first three chapters of Romans that you are Gentile. There's none that seeketh after him. They might seek religion, they might seek a God or something for themselves, but they cannot seek him. They do not desire the true and living God. Unable of ourselves to come to Christ. The Lord Jesus says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And I will come and Darkened understanding. The understanding darkened by sin. Sin devastated us spiritually. 
It rendered us incapable of knowing the true and living God or making any true move toward Him of ourselves. We weren't even able to understand the things of God. As Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.14 A moment. But in 1 Corinthians 2.14 I know that like the back of my hand. The natural man that means men just born into this world by nature the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. He can't know them because they're spiritually discerned and he doesn't have the capacity to spiritually understand. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. That word foolishness, it does not simply mean that he finds them stupid. That means he finds nothing in them appealing to him. He'd rather be anywhere than under the ministry of the Word of God. He'd rather do something else. He doesn't care about the things of God. He doesn't want the things of God. He doesn't seek the things of God. He wants something else. And so the things of God to him have no appeal. That's what it means. They have no appeal to him. wondrous thing when God begins to work and when they begin if they begin to seek out the things that are true and of him it's not because of them because God is working he's doing something wondrous so dear saint all of the glory of your salvation belongs only to God nothing to you nothing to me nothing of the preacher it's all to the praise of the glory of His grace. As in Ephesians 1. And so, there's not only here the truth of substitution in Christ's death. There's also the truth of the oneness of the Father and the Son in the love behind it. In verse 8, but God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Blessedly, substitution's here. There's no gospel without substitution. Substitution is the heart of the gospel. Christ died for our sins, took our place, bore our, our, our sins in His own body on the cross to redeem us. From sin. It's only Christ in taking your place and taking your sins unto himself and suffering all of the wrath of God that belongs against us for our sins that this satisfies completely the grace of God and gives you and me the only basis to come freely to him who we come to be able to declare as Paul loves me. And gave himself for me. The gospel is the good news. The glad tidings of the great joy. That declares 
your sins forgiven. The barrier between you and God completely removed. The way open so that you may freely take what God has purchased for you by the blood of His Son. And it's all and only because Christ took your place before the judgment bar of God and put your sins away completely by the blood of His cross, whose own self bare our sins in His own body on the tree. As in 1 Peter 2.24. And what a glorious gospel we have. Not only in the New Testament. In the Old Testament. Seven centuries before the coming. Of our Lord into human flesh. We learn. That we've gone our own way. And that God hath laid on him. The iniquities of us all. Laid on Christ, not in him, on him. He had no sin of his own. He bore our sins. This is the truth to be believed. This is the faithful saying to be received with all acceptation. And what's the reason behind it? What is the reason behind this incredible Glorious salvation that the Holy Son of God who never sinned came into this world from eternity from the Father took upon Him our flesh and blood and took our sins to the cross to redeem us to God who were lost defiled Undone sinners. What's the reason behind it? God in Christ revealing the greatness of his sovereign love toward us, whom he called by this gospel, who do come to hear this gospel, who are brought to loathe and turn from transgression and sin and trust only in Christ. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One verse. And it does not simply say it is Christ's love. It says God commendeth His love toward us. He who died for you is the one who alone can say, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. So an old expositor put it this way. So there stands the cross, the revelation to us not only of a brother's love, but of a Father's love. And that because Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. The love that was in Christ. The love 
that moved him to give himself for sinners is the manifestation of God's love. But it's more, as we shall see. God commendeth his love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He, Christ, he is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. It is the grand truth that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, Jew, Gentile. Then take note. It's not God commended as a past act, but commendeth. God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the cross is not simply a historical completed event. Yeah, in time this was done. In the history of the world, the cross, the empty tomb. For sure, redemption is complete, finished. We don't add anything to it. The one eternal sacrifice for sin offered once for all. But blessed be God. The efficacy of this sacrifice is as strong and sure now as the day the Lord Jesus Christ cried those victorious words, It is finished from the cross. The efficacy of that redemption is just as much now as then. To be sure... Indeed, the death and resurrection of Christ are events that took place in the history of the world. And as others have discerned, it's the very reason for creation itself. Creation would have been completely annihilated had not God in His purpose, purpose to send His Son into this world by the cross to redeem and to create in him a new creation. Here God displays his attributes and his glory in the highest sense. Securing what was his purpose from eternity, the eternal union of God and man through Christ. What a wondrous purpose. But this word translated commendeth, it's in what has been called the majestic present tense. The majestic present tense. By the cross, God not only manifests his love, by the cross, God appeals to our hearts. By the cross, God appeals to you and me to come to Christ to bring absolutely nothing of yourself. You don't have anything to bring. But you can cry with Augustus Toplady. Nothing. Nothing in my hand do I bring. Simply to thy cross do I cling. 
Because for all, God has completed all. For all whom God gave the Son, it is finished. Redemption is complete. But now God's love bids you to look by faith to Christ crucified and live. Not to bring anything of yourself. Not to try to do any works that God would accept. Not any righteousness you can produce. You don't have any. What a wondrous gospel. God says, look. Look to me. Look to me and live. And that's the look of faith that believes God, that trusts Him and rejoices in the gloriousness of being saved from sin forever and belonging to the living God. So may the brightness of this immense and incredible love of God in Christ shining brightly forth from the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, displaying the glory of that love, calling you to believe it, may it shed its life-giving beams into your very heart. What a Savior. What a gospel. How glorious indeed. May God be pleased to bless the ministry of His Holy Word.